We begin in The Hague, where just this past Friday, the UN's top court delivered an interim ruling on the case of genocide brought against Israel by South Africa. The ICJ ordered so-called provisional measures to protect Palestinians from genocidal acts in Gaza. However, it stopped short of calling for a ceasefire. This was a highly anticipated ruling. It was broadcast around the world. The ICJ's rulings are legally binding. However, they can be difficult to enforce, especially while Israel enjoys the protection of the United States at the UN Security Council, where the US has the power of veto. However, there is no doubt that the ruling did not go Israel's way. The court has found a plausible risk that genocide is occurring or could occur. And that will be difficult for the Israeli government to shrug off, try as it might. Now, this news coming when it did on a Friday afternoon, very late in our production schedule, means that we haven't had time to fully examine the legal implications. But Tarek Nafa has been following the coverage and he joins me now. What are the initial repercussions that you're seeing out there? Well, a lot was at stake here, Richard, not just for Palestinians who are being killed and starved by Israel en masse, but also for the credibility of the international legal order. This may be the most politically divisive case ever brought before The Hague. Could and should the courts have gone further in explicitly ordering a ceasefire? Many will say yes, absolutely. But does the ICJ's decision effectively amount to the same thing that's the interpretation of South Africa's foreign minister. I believe that uh, in exercising uh, the uh, order, there would have to be a ceasefire. Without it, the order uh, doesn't actually work. The ICJ made clear that Palestinians are a protected national group, currently at risk of irreparable harm under the Genocide Convention. The court ordered that to stop. The claim that Israel is doing nothing wrong, that it's acting in self-defense, has effectively been disproven at the world's top court. And how's that going down in the Israeli media? Again, early, just a couple of hours to digest, but what have you seen there? Well, it's interesting. In the hour before the ruling, we saw some journalists and commentators kind of trying to grapple with what was about to happen. Some blamed their predicament on the murderous statements being made by senior Israeli officials. After the ruling came down, there was a lot of celebration from some journalists and commentators because, as they see it, Israel has not been obligated to cease fire. As for the official reaction, Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, said that Israel does not need to be lectured on morality, and he called the case brought by South Africa anti-Semitic. What about the global media? Again, it's early, but wondering if this case is liable to have implications for the way international journalists are covering this story, the kind of terminology they've been using. It's a genocidal assault on Gaza. Human rights organizations agree. Is the, are the global media any more likely to start using the G word in their coverage? Well, that remains to be seen. It's definitely something that we'll be tracking. But it's worth noting that even the charge of genocide, as grave as it is, does not wholly account for what Israel is doing in the Gaza Strip. The targeting of every 
facet of life in Gaza. The obliteration, not just of Palestinians themselves, but their institutions, religious, cultural, educational ones, of their memory, of their ability to have a future in the Gaza Strip. There is ample evidence of all of this being filmed and uploaded by Israeli soldiers in Gaza, but many international journalists don't really seem very interested. Somebody who's pointed that out is Mohammed Al-Kurd, Palestinian journalist from occupied East Jerusalem, writer, journalist, doubles as a media critic, has been unsparing when it comes to the Western coverage of this story, goading international journalists occasionally. You sat him down last week and stuck a camera in his face. Before we hear from him, tell us a little bit about this guy's background. Well, Mohammed Al-Kurd is, like all Palestinians, a product of his environment. He's been an advocate of Palestinians, for Palestinians, since he was a child. Seeing Israeli settlers forcibly take over half of your family home when you're 11 years old will have that effect. And Kurt has built a big following online, not just because of what he says, but how he says it. He refuses to temper his language to make it respectable. He refuses to play the role of what he calls a perfect victim, head bowed, suffering politely. That comes through in our next piece, which takes the form of a kind of video essay. And I started by asking Mohammed Al-Kurd what, if anything, he's learnt since October 7th. I don't think I learned much about the world since October 7th. I think much of what I'd already assumed about the world had been violently reinforced. The fact that there are hierarchies for lives, the fact that a person's death is a tragedy somewhere and another's death is a necessary evil. The fact that there is not a single threshold that the Israeli regime can cross that can make it condemnable in the eyes of empire not apartheid, not military occupation, not settler expansion, not incremental genocide, and now not even full-blown genocide. My name is Mohammed Al-Kurd, and I'm a writer and journalist from Jerusalem, occupied Palestine. Palestinians have been facing challenges of uh, censure, erasure, being misconstrued, being misinterpreted woefully, their words taken out of context, being vilified. <laughs> when terrorist leaders are assassinated, isn't it? No, it is not, because they are not terrorist leaders. But I think in recent months, uh, the approach has been a lot more unabashed and a lot more unapologetic, because this whole framework is racist. This is a genocide happening in front of our eyes. We have, we, that word, is, as you know, incredibly emotive, and the Israelis, as you know, will be saying that they are targeting Hamas only, that they don't target well, civilians. Not the truth, unfortunately. This phenomenon that Palestinian words are misconstrued or placed out of context is not by chance, it is by design. And it's meant, ultimately, primarily, to distract from the tangible systemic institutional violence taking place on the ground. There is right now in Palestine a soldier berating someone, a soldier beating someone, a soldier most likely shooting at someone. There are bombs being dropped over the heads of Palestinians. And yet the conversations in the West are largely steered by abstractions and hypotheticals about words and language. There is no way you can sit there and not condemn the actions of Hamas. Will you now take the opportunity to condemn what Hamas did on October the 7th. Final, I only ask you one more time. <sighs> we must refuse to engage these kinds of uh, discursive loops that are meant to distract.
to distract from the bombs being dropped, from the occupation being financed, from the literal genocide taking place against our people. Driving into Gaza with the Israeli forces. Palestinians are not asking journalists to do us any favor. We're simply asking them to do their jobs. The purpose of this profession is to tell the truth. And the facts on the ground are so clear. The asymmetry of power is so staggering. It simply cannot be misunderstood. So to fabricate nuance, to create layers that do not exist in reality. It's not just spinelessness, it's complicity. Admiral, how are you? I hear a lot from journalists who are working within mainstream institutions who say they wish they could do better, how they see things that are racist, that are anti-Palestinian, how they want to speak up against their bosses. And they tell me that they are afraid, they're afraid of repercussions, be it losing a paycheck or losing a reputation or being smeared as a bigot or whatnot. And I think at a certain point, you just have to acknowledge that your life is not worth more than the lives of the people you're reporting on. And you must act accordingly. We all talk about having more representation in the newsroom, and this is the time for this. This is the time to call out your boss for casual racism. This is the time to refuse pernicious uh, media framings, like calling things Israel-Hamas war, when one side is a massive nuclear state and the other is a militant group. Now is the time to refuse passive voice, war crime denialism, fact emission. Now is the time to disrupt racism in the workroom, to strike. Now is the time to become a whistleblower or to work with a whistleblower. This is the time for transformation. We tell ourselves time and time again that we are going to go into these institutions, that we are going to change things from the inside, and we pander and we get pandered to, and we take the microaggressions and we take the casual racism and we say, okay, once I make more money, once I have enough safety and security, once I establish enough of a friendly uh, rapport with, with this boss or that manager, then I can speak up. And then years down the line, you realize that this bright-eyed journalism student no longer exists and you are just as complicit as the media organizations that you once denounced. It's not enough for us to be well-meaning. You cannot be well-meaning and also not say something about lies being printed in the press. This makes you a partner in crime. I cannot overstate this, this partnership. The Israeli regime would not and could not operate the way it does today if it weren't for the constant coddling of the mainstream media. As we're, we're getting into... So there's this narrative that the Israeli regime is targeting journalists because they want to suppress the truth. But I don't think there's a scarcity of truth. We have seen more dead Palestinians than we have ever seen before. And still the bombs have not stopped and still the world's superpowers have not called for a ceasefire. I think what there is a scarcity of is integrity. And that is what Palestinian journalists have offered us in the past 100 days, is to stop in the middle of the massacre to fulfill your civic duty of reporting the truth, that is integrity. And the killing of journalists cannot be isolated from the killing of Palestinian society at large. It cannot be divorced from the fact that not only journalists are being targeted, but professors, doctors, government ministries and hospitals and universities and schools. There is a coordinated attempt to kill any social or political infrastructure that exists within Gaza, not only so that it's 
physically uninhabitable, but so that you can no longer operate a society, that you can kill the political and national expression coming out of the Gaza Strip. That is the goal of killing journalists, I think. Zionism is indefensible. I say this a lot because people like to meddle in this idea that Zionism can have multiple meanings, that it's complicated, that while it subjugates one people, it fulfills self-determination for another people. We must reject all of this because Zionism can only be defined by the crimes, by the actions it practices today in reality. There can be no double meaning beyond the material reality that it gives us. Right? You cannot talk about what's happening in Gaza today without naming the culprit. And the culprit is Zionism. Those are the principles of Zionism, not the romantic orations of people today. The facts on the ground speak for themselves. We must denounce any political ideology that elevates one people over another. In today's world, it is unfathomable that you defend anti-black racism or white supremacy or misogyny. It is unfathomable and yet we have these debates and hypotheticals about whether Zionism is defendable, whether Zionism is viable, whether there can be nuance to Zionism. In storytelling, you're not supposed to leave the reader too anguished. So when we're talking about Gaza or Palestine, the tendency is that you end the story with talking about Palestinian people's resilience or generosity, love for life, love for one another. Oftentimes it's actually quite hard not to talk about these things. Palestinians in Gaza have been teaching us lessons in humanity. But I worry that this tendency to talk about our resilience is not about the Palestinian in Gaza, but it's about the consumer of the news. It's about me looking at these people, seeing that, yes, they are under the barrage of rockets, but they are able to keep the faith. And that makes me relax a bit. That makes me a bit complacent. It makes me feel like, خلاص, God is with them. They're strong. They keep their spirits high. I don't need to do much. And it's beautiful. It's, it's very beautiful to see Palestinians smiling in front of the camera, even as the massacre withstands. But I think what's more beautiful is the urgency that all of this has inspired. Our refusal to normalize massacres as business as usual is a lot more beautiful than uh, singing the praises of resilience. I think Palestinians are a bit more stubborn than resilient. You know, we refuse to die. We refuse to submit. We say death over indignity. And Palestinians in Gaza have shown us this. Not only do they have the, uh, the right to live, but they have the right to contempt. They have the right to feel angry, the right to fury, the right to not want to forgive, not want to be graceful, not want to be perfect victims. This is important, especially against the backdrop of a media landscape that says that the only Palestinian that should be interviewed is the docile Palestinian, is the defanged Palestinian, is the Palestinian who is willing to forgive his murderers. And I think that is absolutely dehumanizing. We humanize Palestinians by acknowledging that they, like everybody else in the world, have the right not only to hope and joy and resilience and forgiveness and grace, but also the right to contempt and anger and fury.
The moral of the story here isn't that Palestinians are superior beings who are able to be kind and generous even amid destruction. If you ask me, this is about the humankind. This is about whether humanity can fail or succeed, because I know it. I know that in 10 years and 20 years time, there's going to be all kinds of conclusions drawn about what's happening today. And people are going to say, if I were alive during that time, and if I had power during that time, well, we are alive today and we have power now and there's something we can do about it. Turning now to a major story out of India, the long-anticipated, deeply contentious consecration of a Hindu temple this past week involving Prime Minister Narendra Modi. For almost 500 years, the site was home to a mosque, which was demolished by Hindu rioters back in the early 90s. Modi's party, the BJP, has long been agitating for the mosque to be replaced by a temple to the god Ram, who many Hindus believe was born at that same site. The timing of this is no coincidence. There's an election just around the corner. However, the inauguration flies in the face of Indian secularism, which is supposed to be constitutionally protected. Most news outlets, whether out of belief or fear, have been on message, as Indians have grown accustomed to under Modi. But believers in a multi-faith democratic India are calling this one more step down a dangerous road to a theocracy. It was a ceremony that was decades, if not centuries, in the making. The consecration of a new temple built in the name of the Hindu god Ram on the site of what was once a mosque destroyed by mobs of Hindus in 1992. Secularism is still the constitutional law of the land in India, yet the ritual showcases a prime minister, Narendra Modi, whose words could be mistaken for a priest's. Ram Bharat ki aasta hai. Ram Bharat ka aadhar hai. Ram Bharat ka vichar hai. Ram Bharat ka vidhan hai. With an election coming, Modi's speech sounds suspiciously like a campaign kickoff. The crowd drawn to the northern city of Ayodhya includes movie stars, politicians, industrialists, cricket players, and journalists from India's hundreds of news channels. So, Hindi media. Indian media and Hindi language media in particular have often shown their communal bias. With the coverage of the Ram Temple, it's reaching a new crescendo. Let's say with absolute pride, Jai Shri Ram. It's being politicized deeply. Nobody really quite believes that this is disconnected from the election. Why do you even need to uh, contest an election? It, it, this is ordained and the media is buying it hook, line and sinker and is a very active part of propagating and pushing it. Ram Bhakti mein dube Modi ko desh mehsoos kar sakta hai. You have to understand the context of it. Uh, it is political because the reconstruction of the temple that came about because of a relentless political struggle. But that doesn't mean that it is not religious because the, the yearning of the people to see their deity Lord Ram on the site where he was born, that is a deeply religious yearning. 
Such yearnings can come at a communal cost, as Indians saw in December of 1992, when a crowd of militant Hindus tore down the mosque that stood on the same site, the Babri Masjid. It was named after Babur, the Mughal emperor, who had it built centuries before. The riots that then erupted across India killed an estimated 2,000 people. Hindus had long argued that the site was Ram's place of birth, that an ancient temple there had been destroyed to make way for the mosque. Despite a lack of evidence of that, the BJP party that Narendra Modi now leads adopted it as an article of faith. This story provides a measure of how the Indian media have changed and embraced Hindutva, the BJP's hardcore brand of religious nationalism, led by all those news channels, many owned by corporations in cahoots with the BJP. The narrative has shifted accordingly compared to 1992. In those days, there was still a certain thinking that one does not destroy the house of worship of other people. And the media shared in that view. Largely, there were editorials written that expressed their sorrow at these developments. We didn't have the presence of private television that we have today. And that has made a great deal of difference. India today, for instance, they call it a dark day and head hanging in shame. But now you would think you're, you're part of watching a religious channel. There are thousands and hundreds of religious channels here. But it's very hard to kind of distinguish between news and those kind of frenzy-generating sort of channels. Hindi media... Hindi media is proclaiming the inauguration of the Ram Temple as a historical moment for the country. But it hides its history. It avoids any objective scrutiny or discussion of the criminal acts that led to its construction. In the past decade, the Hindutva discourse the idea of a natural Hindu supremacy has become the dominant discourse. It has no place for secularism. Whether it's Kannada, Assamese, English or Hindi media, you will invariably see them speaking the language of Hindutva. And dressing the part. News sets in Ayodhya decked out with images of Lord Ram. Journalists using language far more reverential than reporter-like. This jettisoning of journalistic balance now reflects what many Hindus, right-wingers and nationalists have argued since 1947, that India's independence leaders made an historic mistake. Unlike Pakistan, which became a Muslim country, India declared itself secular, vowing that minorities such as Muslims, Sikhs, Christians and others would be the equals of the Hindu majority. That historical grievance amongst some Hindus festered for decades before being tapped into by Narendra Modi's BJP. Hate crimes against Muslims and other minorities have risen on Modi's watch, including more attacks on Muslim-owned businesses this past week. For the news channels catering to the huge Hindu market, including Hindu supremacists, defending secularism now ranks low on their list of editorial priorities. And that is an understatement. The Ram Temple is in fact the edifice of a Hindu Indian state. No other news in the country is worth reporting. It's a new era that this is 
a temple of national consciousness. The primetime shows and other shows. Primetime news shows seem to be in a competition to outdo each other and plumbing new depths. India today is the first channel to get you the divinity on television. The destruction of the Babri Mosque was also the destruction of secularism in India. Now it's the act of cleaning away the debris of secularism. The founders of India said that we will remain a secular nation. So there is this history of trying to curb communal feelings and to bring people together. So that is the history that is now slowly being erased. What you're going to see is sharpening of these divides as the Hindutva projects takes off even more. And that's the worry. These fears are completely unfounded because the nature of Hindu religion is not properly understood. India is the only country in this, in this neighborhood which is a democracy, which has never had a coup, and where the minorities are thriving. And that is happening because the Hindus are inherently plural. India is not a Hindu theocratic state. On the contrary, India is an aspirational state. There's also the timing, the electoral factor, and the otherwise inexplicable rush to consecrate a temple that's still being built. India's opposition parties, an anti-BJP coalition that includes the Congress party's Rahul Gandhi, boycotted the consecration, calling it politicized, unworthy of a secular India. They too are campaigning in an election that is yet to be called by marching across India, encountering voters. What they are not attracting are audiences. In a media space that is ever faithful to the BJP, they cannot compete with Narendra Modi at the best of times, let alone when Modi has Lord Ram at his side, if not on it. The biggest opposition leader, Rahul Gandhi, is drawing large crowds, but the story is getting buried in an obscure corner inside the newspaper. Every front page has stories pouring over every detail of the temple. Where is this taking the country? We were promised an India that was egalitarian and diverse, a land where everyone could live in peace. That dream of India seems to be over. And the imagery around it kind of takes Mr. Modi as beyond politics. He's imbued in this hierarchy of the gods. The media's participation, a lot of it is because they're being forced to do it, they're terrified of the government. But we must not discount those parts of the media who are completely willing participants in the propagandizing of this whole idea and pushing it forward. What we are seeing is a mediatization of politics and a politicization of the media and they go hand in hand it's very difficult to in fact disentangle them i believe the temple consecration is the beginning of a new chapter in indian history and finally this past friday just four days after the consecration in ayodhya was republic day in india it's a national holiday that marks the adoption of the Constitution back in 1950. So in the space of less than a week, Indians saw their secular ways that are supposed to be constitutionally protected take an apparent hit, and then they celebrated that same Constitution as if nothing happened. We'll stay on the India story, and we'll be back with more on the ICJ decision and what it means for the people of Gaza. See you next time here at The Listening Post.